Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You know, at the Hartford, they understand that there's nothing small in small business. As a small business owner, you're busy. You have a ton of big decisions to make every day. And the last thing you want to do is worry about your small business insurance. With coverage from the Hartford, you don't have to. With over 200 years of experience and over 1 million customers, they are specialists in small business, from workers' compensation to professional liability, commercial auto, and more. The Hartford offers a wide range of small business insurance products so you can keep focused on what you love knowing that they are behind you every step of the way. Learn more at thehartford.com slash smallbusiness. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of for us to talk about. So stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Number 44. I'm John Taffer. This is my No Excuses podcast, episode 44. And uh, I'm back in Vegas after two weeks in Kansas City. Just shot two episodes of Bar Rescue. And uh, Corey, next week I have one of the biggest announcements I think I've ever made on this podcast. A really big one. Now, I've told everybody about Taffer's Mixologist, I think. Taffer's Mixologist is a mixer line that I've been working on, oh, for two years. And I worked with the greatest mixologist in the country using all cold-pressed fresh ingredients. And I created a, a, a product uh, with a great mixologist named Brian Van Flander, worked with me on the recipes. I created a product called Taffer's Mixologist. And we went to Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, and we pitched it to Walmart. And, uh, you know, they have to do all sorts of research on your brand, Corey, because they don't put your name on things uh, uh, unless they know you're not going to rape a child, get drunk, get a DWI, be a jerk, blah, 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 blah. So they do all the brand research. Then we had to come back and do all sorts of tastings and, and, and get past all different levels of tasting and product consistency and quality and freshness and shelf space uh, uh, allocations and all of that. So we got approval, and I'm proud to say that on June 24th, Taffer Mixologist – uh, uh, will be in 4,589 Walmarts all across the country. Wow. And, and 1,456 of those Walmarts will have three flavors, our Bloody Mary, which is the best you've ever had, our Strawberry Margarita, and our Skinny Margarita. But uh, uh, um, all the other stores will have all seven flavors, which is Bloody Mary, Strawberry Margarita, Skinny Margarita, Cosmopolitan Mojito, Pina Colada, and Regular Margarita. And I am really excited about this, Corey. It's up. Really exciting thing. You know, when Walmart orders product for 4,500 stores, if you just say they're only going to buy a couple hundred bottles per store, that's a lot of freaking product. Yeah. Man. I mean, we're talking seven digits uh, 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 worth of product they order just to fill the initial shelves. So I'm really excited about it. We'll tell everybody really soon uh, uh, in the next few weeks as the product comes out. We'll start uh, doing recipes with it, and it's a really exciting time for us here. Also, uh, I'm pretty darn excited. I've been keeping this a secret for weeks, Corey, but I've been shooting a new television show with Paramount, and uh, I'm ex- I'm proud to say the show was actually created for me. 
And I can't say the name of it. It's a relationship-based show. It premieres on Sunday, June 2nd. And next week, I will tell everybody what it is. I'm not allowed to tell you yet, but I can tell you next week. So there'll be official announcements. And I'm really excited. You know, new television shows are tested with focus groups and all sorts of market research. And this show tested off the charts. So I'm really, really excited. Don't worry. We're not stopping Bar Rescue. But uh, uh, we have a great announcement. So don't miss next week's podcast for probably one of the biggest, most important announcements uh, I've ever made on this podcast. So you know it was interesting? Uh, in Kansas City, uh, uh, we were really packed. And a couple weeks ago, Corey, we started doing something different. And you've been helping with this. Yeah. We now post on my social media channels when we're doing stress tests and when we're doing reveals. So if you watch me on Facebook or you watch me on Twitter, uh, so many people say, John, I want to come to a stress test. John, I want to come to a reveal. Well, here's your chance. Watch my social media channels, and we post it. We won't tell you the name of the bar, but we will say the distress test. We'll provide you with the location. We post it all the time. And since we've been posting it, Corey, people have really been reacting. They really, really love it. Yeah, we've been getting some good reactions on social. So if anybody wants to come to a stress test or come to a reveal, just watch my social media pages. We'll be going all over the country in the next uh, six or eight months. And most of you, if you really want to come, will probably be able to come and see one. So... A couple weeks ago, I did my first ever emergency rescue. So there was a bar that was in so much trouble. The owner, a woman, was in so much trouble that we juggled the schedules and moved everything around and did our first ever emergency rescue. And I'm really proud. It came out really, really good. Uh, uh, So, you know, some of them just mean more to you than others. You personally connect. You know what I mean, Corey? Yeah. And, And some of them are about bars. Some of them are about people to me. And the first emergency rescue we ever did, and I can't tell you the name of it, uh, uh, you'll see it over the summer. And it's one of the most emotional bar rescues that I've ever done. But I'll tell you, one thing that's great about bar rescue is I always complain that I'm traveling all the time and I travel 40 weeks a year. But, you know, going to cities and spending time in them, because when we shoot bar rescue, we shoot three in a city. That's how the economics work. So if I go to a city like Kansas City, I'm going to be there for about three weeks, and I'll fly in and out a few times, but I'll be there pretty much for three weeks, and I'll learn so much about the city. Well, I've been in Kansas City for two weeks, and I've got to tell you, I've become a huge fan of Kansas City. Kansas City is one cool freaking city. The retail, the downtown areas that I'm in, and the hotel that I'm staying in, just really, really wonderful. And before Kansas City, we were in Dallas for three weeks. And, of course, Dallas is one of the greatest cities in America. But getting a chance to spend time in Kansas City and Dallas, and then in a couple weeks we go to Denver for a few weeks, is really, really exciting, and it gives us an opportunity to connect. You know, when I travel around the country, I always look at vacant stores, vacant downtown areas. Sometimes I actually tear up. And you've heard me talk on this podcast, you know, when stores are vacant, it's not a store that's vacant. Some family put their money in that business, you know, rented, signed the lease, built it, opened it, and then it failed and it closed. And I hate seeing closed businesses. And I'm such an advocate for small business uh, uh, that seeing an empty storefront in any downtown area in any city just upsets me. Well, I've been talking about this and finally it's happened. A few weeks ago, Opportunity Zones became official in America. And right now, there's 8,700 opportunity zones across the USA. Now, here's what's unbelievable. According to Forbes, they say it's the most unbelievable tax break ever in U.S. history to do business in these enterprise zones. Matter of fact, the U.S. economy, investors, capitalists, venturists are so excited 
about these new Opportunity Zone concepts that they've created conventions. And a few weeks from now in Las Vegas, there is an Opportunity Zone convention where literally hundreds of bankers, Corey, investors, people with money are coming to Las Vegas to meet and determine how they can put money into these enterprise zones. Wow, that's amazing. It is. And these enterprise zones are basically storefronts, Corey, and areas of downtown and various cities, not all downtown, some are suburban, et cetera, rural, but they provide opportunity for people like you and I to start a business. Right. So think about this for a moment. All this money is coming together. They're excited about these opportunity zones. You could go online, Corey, look up Opportunity Zones, and there's a bunch in the state of Nevada. They're in every state. Find one of the 8,700 that interests you. Come up with a business that fits in that Opportunity Zone, and you will find the money for it because the money is out there now. So for people who have actually thought about opening a business – Go check out Opportunity Zone. Just type in Opportunity Zones in Google. You'll see there's all sorts of sources. You'll see there's equity groups. There's investment groups. Everybody on the money side of the business wants to invest in these Opportunity Zones now. Years ago, they were called Enterprise Zones. Now they're Opportunity Zones. If you want to start a business... This is the time to do it. So go online, check out Opportunity Zones. You'll see how many are in every state, where they are near you. Understand the money is out there. All you need to do is find the Opportunity Zone you want to be in, find a business that works in an Opportunity Zone, put your business plan together, and there are many, many places you can go now to get the money. This is Boomtown, and Opportunity Zones are, are, are a big example of it. So if you want to start a small business... This is the time. There's no excuses. Think about it. 8,700 opportunity zones. And that's not businesses, Corey. Every opportunity zone could have 100 businesses in it. Right. So the opportunity is limitless. The zones are there. The money is there. This is the time to do small business. And at the Hartford, they understand that there's nothing small in small business. As a small business owner, you're busy, but you have a ton of big decisions to make every day. And the last thing you want to do is worry about your small business insurance. With coverage from the Hartford, you don't have to. With over 200 years of experience and over 1 million customers, they're specialists in small business, from workers' compensation to professional liability, commercial auto, and more. The Hartford offers a wide range of small business insurance products so you can keep focus on what you love, knowing that they're behind you every step of the way. Learn more at thehartford.com slash business. That's thehartford.com slash business. All righty, so it is April 22nd. And it is National Earth Day. Did you know that? It is, yeah. I'm, I'm big on Earth Day. I know you are. You're, you love to be outside in the I desert. Do. and, and uh, 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 So you're always out four-wheeling and buzzing around the desert. And I stuff. am. So that's the beautiful thing about Nevada is it's so beautiful out there. And there's nothing worse than seeing trash when you're out there, too. You know, and it's, you know I, I told everybody this. I bought a Jeep a few weeks ago, and I went out there, and I, it's terrible yeah. how people throw trash out in the desert and stuff. It's actually outrageous. It's National Girl Scout Leaders Day. It's also National Jelly Bean Day. All right, Corey, trivia question of the day. Okay. How many jelly beans do you think were sold last year just in America? Oh, man. I had to have eaten at least 1,000 <laughs> alone. Well, you didn't eat many compared to how many there are. <laughs> 15 billion jelly Jeez, beans. That sounds right. And you know, it's interesting when you look at jelly beans, there's different flavors that are regional. 
like cherry is more popular in the Northeast, but other colors are more popular in the Southwest. So everybody thinks they have a flavored jelly bean. And I've always thought to myself, why don't they just put the red ones in the package? We don't want the others. Not true. In other regions of the country, they do want the others. So what I found out when I was doing my jelly bean research was that everybody has their own favorite jelly bean. It's like anything else in life. So Tuesday, National Talk Like Shakespeare's Day. Can you talk like Shakespeare? I don't know. Yeah, do I don't that. even know if I want to give it a chance. No, that's not something I want to do. <laughs> National Picnic Day is Tuesday. National Take a Chance Day. That's a pretty good day, I think. So take a little risk, go yeah. out and do something. It's also on Tuesday, National Cherry Cheesecake Day. Ooh. And one that's really, really important to me, National Lost Dogs Awareness Day. You know, I rescued a dog named Moxie with my wife, Nicole. And we were going to a pet store, and we have another dog, Winston. And we went to the pet store, Corey, and every Saturday we'd go to this pet store, and they'd have the adoption cages in front. And there was this dog in front, not a very good-looking dog, was missing half its hair, was mangy, was emaciated. You know, a dog was shaking, it was terrible. And we saw this dog, and I felt terrible for it, we went into the store. I forgot about it. The next week we came by, and that dog was still out there a week later. Wow. And less hair and more shaking and... The third week we went there, and I realized this dog's not going to make it another week. So rather than picking the most beautiful dog out there, we picked the ugliest dog out there. And this dog was shaking when I took it home. It was so terrified that when you went to pet it on the head, Corey, its eyes closed. It, like, froze, which is a panic thing that they do. And uh, uh, two and a half years later, or maybe three and a half years later, Moxie is, is overweight, full of hair, the happiest, sweetest little thing I've ever known is a dog. And saving her changed my life. 4,100 pets. 4,100 will be killed today. Wow. You know, we as a society need to do something about this. Yeah. You know, we need to rescue dogs. We need to drop foods off at shelters. We need to somehow make a difference in this. You know, to think about all of those lost souls you know, brings a tear to my eye. But I'll tell you what, I have a beautiful pedigree dog and I have a rescue dog. And that rescue dog knows she was rescued and she appreciates life every day. And it's one of the most gratifying things that I've ever done. So if you're thinking about getting a dog, please rescue one. So Wednesday is National Pigs in a Blanket Day. It's National Administrative Professionals Day on Wednesday. Thursday, things got a little intense. It's National Telephone Day. I'll give you a call, Corey. All right. National East Meets West Day. I guess that would be a good day to call uh, uh, the Korean leaders and see if they can make any progress there. I don't think that's going to happen. It's also National Zucchini Bread Day. National DNA Day. <laughs> National Hug a Plumber Day. So, Just walk up to a plumber and give them a hug today, Corey. Let's see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> National Take Our Daughters and Sons to Work Day is Thursday. Friday becomes National Audubon Day, National Dissertation Day. So that means I'm going to talk your ass off, Corey. I'm just not going to shut up. I'm going to talk all day. It's National Richter Scale Day, National Kids and Pets Day, National South Dakota Day, National Arbor Day. And I think one of my favorites since we started this bit, Corey, I don't think you can do a better one than this. On Friday, April 26th, it is National 
Hairball Awareness Day. <laughs> These days keep getting weirder, I swear. So that one's my favorite so far yeah. for, for the few weeks That's that we've done one. this. And then Saturday is National Babe Ruth Day, National Tell a Story Day, and National Prime Rib Day. National Devil Dog Day. Have you ever had a devil dog? I don't think I have. A devil dog is an East Coast thing. I think they have oh, a different okay. name for it here. It's two pieces of chocolate cake with white cream in the middle. Oh. And it's sort of the shape of a hot dog. When the East Coast, they call them devil dogs. Uh, um, anyway, so is devil dog day. It would be an East Coast thing, I'm guessing. And then we're going to rind it up with Sunday, National Superhero Day, National Blueberry Pie Day, National Great Poetry Reading Day. Workers Memorial Day, National Brave Hearts Day, and National Pet Parents Day. That's your week, Hart. It's a pretty damn exciting week when it, it comes is. to That's National good Days. But you know, we just passed four twenty, and four twenty, of course, is the you know the big day that everybody talks about cannabis and everything. And you know, it's fascinating. Cannabis stocks are up well over hundred percent because I own a bunch of them. And when we take a look at the impact of what's going on with cannabis, well, first of all, CBDs are infusing products like crazy. From $9 CBD-infused donuts to $14 CBD-infused brownie mixes. You know, nobody quite knows where this is going to go. But we're seeing CBDs in all sorts of consumables. We're starting to see it be used in restaurants as well. So CBDs is taking off. More women are using weed than ever before. A, a, a cannabis delivery company in California says women are now behind 75% of orders. Wow. Which is really incredible. Yeah. And then when we take a look at, you know, cannabis is now going to cross $12 billion this year. Jeez. And then the budding beverage boom. So everybody's making cannabis products now, cannabis-infused sodas, cannabis-infused. But nobody, and you can't legally, you cannot infuse cannabis into a product with alcohol. So if you see something that says cannabis, it's not beer in essence, that it has alcohol in it. It's just that it has a cannabis derivative in it, which wouldn't be alcoholic at all. So there's a whole bunch of companies producing all sorts of uh, uh, cannabis-infused beverages. Island Cannabis is another one. Province Brands is another one. And then weed delivery is taking off, and that's really becoming the future. There's a whole bunch of websites popping up that you can look at product and order product online. Companies like BudTrader.com, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, dispensaries are going to go away like Blockbuster Video. Remember Blockbuster? Oh, yeah. Hardly. Well, you know, cannabis is going to turn into a home delivery product, too, and an Internet-based product once the federal uh, laws are adjusted. Uh, uh, but it's fascinating to see what's happening. And then, of course, uh, um, this was a statistic that blew me away. Up to 40% of adults 21 and over consume cannabis in states where it's legal. 40%. Wow. Last year, Americans drank 3,345 billion cases of alcohol. This year, we went down 0.8, eight-tenths of 1%. And may, many people think that decline is due to cannabis. I'm not sure it is. You know, I think great bars draw people, and you go to a bar to have a good time, Corey, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, a cannabis experience is a very, very different experience than the one that people would have in a bar. So, But I could see it impacting uh, at-home use of alcohol versus right. cannabis yeah. products. And the other thing I worry about cannabis is cannabis is sort of a couch drug, right? You do a little cannabis, and you sit on your couch all night long. So you're not going to do cannabis and then go to a bar or then go to a venue. So that's what I worry about is that the cannabis can cause people to stay home more. 
And staying home more means we all interact less. We all go to restaurants less. We all go to bars less. And I'm not sure that's a good thing for us as a society or good for our business culture. But, Corey, I have rarely been this excited about a guest. Oh, yeah? Like I am, Brian. Brian Kilmeade is not only a good friend of mine. Uh, I've met Brian and his wife, Dawn. Nicole and I have gone out to lunch with Brian. Uh, We've been in Brian's bar in, in Manhasset called Publicans. And I actually did reports and helped him uh, 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 when he was having some issues there at his bar. You know, I love Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade was a stand-up comedian who became a sports announcer, worked with Jim Brown and some others, and then started to do some news segments on Fox. And it was a gentleman by the name of Tony Snow who left Fox News at the time to become a press secretary uh, uh, for George Bush. And suddenly Brian Kilmeade got promoted from that moment. Well, years later, Brian Kilmeade's now a host of Fox and Friends. He interviews presidents, interviews congressmen, interviews world leaders. And from a stand-up comedian and a sports color man, Brian has taken his career to an unbelievable level from managing debates with presidential and political candidates, meeting world leaders, debating some of the most important issues of our time. And all of this came from a stand-up comedian and a sports color man. So there's so much to talk about with Brian, about his career, how he got where he wanted to go. Because Brian's mission when he was young and the way he built his career is going to be interesting to all of us. So when I come back, I'm going to be with my good friend, Brian Kelly. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. 60 seconds. That's exactly how long this commercial lasts. And you know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate True Cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions and get the answers you need so there's no surprises. Then, simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Let me first welcome you, of course, uh, uh, to my listeners, a good friend of mine, Brian Kilmead, uh, uh, who I've been looking forward to having on the show because you have such an interesting past, Brian, that's brought you to where you are today. So I was excited to have you on. But in full disclosure, Brian and I are friends. We've had lunch together. Uh, uh, he has a great history in a bar business. And there's so much I want to talk to you about. But so I brought you into the Skype universe today is what you were saying. Yeah, um, I'm on my desktop. I asked my daughter, do me a favor. I'm supposed to do a Skype tomorrow. I've got uh, that. I'm, I'm going to be. A, I realized the date was a Saturday that I accepted. So she's like, no problem. You're set up. And I go, well, what do I have to do? She said, I don't know. I've never done it. So it was very easy. <laughs> Corey called. I clicked on. So this is it. This is not the best backdrop, but this is actually my desk where I get everything done. Uh, that's awesome. It's great to have you here, buddy. Thanks for coming. So you and I are both Long Islanders. We grew up oh, maybe 20 miles from each other. I'm a great neck boy. You're a Massapequa boy. What's fascinating is you still live where you grew up, right? In the yes. same basic community. Your family was in the bar business. Talk to me about that for a moment when you grew up. 
Yeah, it's really, uh, it's, it's very direct. I mean, my, my grandfather came over here in 1920, worked in a supermarket, then bought the supermarket, uh, worked in a bar, then bought the bar in Long Island City, which is, it was very bad for a while. Now it's coming back to the hottest places just outside the Midtown Tunnel. Uh, for a while, it was there was a few studios there where they did Rescue Me and some other things. And um, then he moved to Manhasset and he bought a bar in Manhasset. My dad started out as a chemist but loved the bar business, got into it, and was just about to take the bar over when he uh, died right uh, right around where the bar. He hit a pole oh. and, uh, on Shelter Rock Road in 1979. But in that time... We spend, you know, he would be very transparent about this is how much money we made last night. This is what we need to do. I got one bartender stealing from me. There was a fight in the bar. The age was 18. Cops were always around this uh, this bar trying to get that person who drank too much. And twice he got closed down. Someone with bad ID. And we didn't have a paycheck for two and a half weeks. So, wow. so I it was really tough. It. Yeah. So he had a tough bar to operate. Those are the most challenging of all. So in essence, every day went to work. You had no idea what was going to happen. That yeah. And my grandparents, John, were not into the food aspect of bar. They said, you go to a bar to drink, go to a restaurant to eat. So my dad said, I got to go around them. So as we're waiting for three years prior from maybe fourth to seventh grade, he went and cut a deal with a bakery. And then we got a great deal in a supermarket, a small supermarket. And we would make ham and cheese. My mom would make the meatballs. And we would we'd wrap them up and he'd have a lunch business. And we would, that was pure profit for us. So that was almost like having a side job. So every night around six, we would be making the sandwiches four or five times a week. Wow. So you grew up really with food service and, and the bar business in your blood. Did you play in the bar when it was closed, when your dad went in and did work on closed hours and things? Yeah. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was fantastic. And by the way, the, the bar actually itself goes back to the days of speakeasies. And in the basement – are those paintings where I think they call them fresco where the plaster's not quite dry yet yeah. and paint in the walls and it goes deep in the walls. And they have portrayals of like 1910, 1920 of these people playing cards and Perry Como uh, used to go down there and play cards. And, wow. uh, you know, there was a lot of people in Manhasset because as you know, with Manhasset, if people watch around the country, so many people on nine 11 died there because so many people live there and wall yeah. street. 25 minutes outside, you get off the train, you're on a strip. Yep. It's one of the closest uh, um, uh, uh, cities outside of the five boroughs of New York. Great Neck, Manhasset, those several yeah. right there. You know, uh, it's funny when, when when you talk about that. When, when my daughter was young, Brian, I owned a big nightclub outside of Chicago, and we didn't live far. And I had a dance floor with uh, uh, bubble machines and confetti machines. So she, when she was six and seven, wanted to have her birthday at the nightclub on Saturday mornings. So I'd bring a DJ in. We would dump confetti on and put the dance floor lighting in and everything. She said it was great growing up in a bar business, Dad. She thought it was very, very cool. <laughs> Did you think it was fun growing up in it? I did. I, you know, in Manhasset to Massapequa was 30 minutes, so it felt like uh, an eternity. Pack up, we're going in. Uh, what <laughs> happened is there was three years where the bar was leased out, where my dad went to a different business and my grandparents moved to Florida, and they wrecked it. And they came back. My grandparents said, listen, if you want to take this thing back, I'll help you stand it up, and then I'm out. And we used to go there. It was totally trashed. And we used to sweep everything to the middle. I had an evil Knievel thing, and everyone used to bring their toys and GI Joes, and we used to play in the rubble. We thought uh, it was the greatest thing. And but you know, my my mom with a staple gun re reupholstering the stools, 
you know, in the backdrop, we were researching, she was resurfacing the bar, you know, she had to scrape it up and redo it. Uh, so to me, watching this come together, we felt as we felt a part of it rather than just go there and play. Well, you're in the business now. You own a bar, which we'll talk about in a little bit. When did you know that you wanted to be in the media business or did you ever know that growing up? I knew it from from day one as being wanted to be a great athlete and wasn't. Um, I like the restaurant business, but I always wanted to be in front of people. I love sports and that was my way in. I did stand up for a while, too, because I like being in front of people. Not so much. Um, I'm not. A, I don't sing. I don't dance. Sadly, I'm just me. But I feel like I, I always felt like <laughs> I wanted to, to say something and I wanted to be good enough to do it. So that was the journey from I really from um, eighth grade. So in high school, you were you were in the national high school television news program. So that's when you really started to get around real equipment and get engaged in no, it. And- no, I'm actually Channel One started. I was I was in the real world, and it was a program that piped right into high schools. It gave you news, but sold commercials. Ah. And it was an ingenious thing, but people were upset that commercial was going into schools. But we go, but the theory was, and the game and the business plan was, a lot of these underserved communities have no idea what's happening in news. So I'll hire younger people, 20s, to do a dress like this news where you stand up and you make it conversational. And the people that produced were like, oh, today show people and network people. So the quality, the product was great. I mean, when Channel One called, I got a one on one with Jordan, not because. Uh, I was some famous person, but because Channel One was so respected, they wanted to get to the kids. So I'd be the reporter that went out there and spoke to Michael Jordan in Madison Square Garden uh, when I was 24, 25 years old. But I wasn't in high school, but my audience was high school. You know, it's interesting. Your passion for sports, and look, I've watched you from the beginning on Fox and stuff. You love your sports passion, but you've done an amazing uh, uh, a transformation, obviously, in a primetime news and such, which we'll talk about in a moment. So now, now you go to Ontario, California, you start working with Jim Brown, who's just one of the my, my sports idols. Right. And uh, uh, from that, you went into UFC. Talk to me about how those, those kinds of movement happened, because I was with Dana White. He was on this very broadcast just a few weeks ago, and we toured his offices, and UFC is a heck of a story. You were involved in the early days. Yeah, a couple of things. So I went out to California. I just put, uh, packed up my Celica, and we went, I went across the <laughs> country without a job. Because I wanted to j- take control. So I, I was able to do stand-up. I was able to do uh, radio. I was able to do TV. And I was just going to make something happen. Stay with a friend from college. Uh, and I was able to get a job at Catch a Rising Star selling and did a little stand-up. And then I was able to get a job in Ontario, California at an independent station. Which, just so you know, it's halfway to Palm Springs and halfway to Los Angeles. It's right in the middle. And it was like going to the Hamptons from Manhattan every day. So I was able to do that and make $596 every two weeks and then, and then host on XTRA, All Sports Radio, uh, and fill in. And they had an opportunity to co-host with Jim Brown. And no one wanted to do it because Jim Brown was so intense. And Jim Brown didn't want to talk sports. He wanted to talk about life, gangs, uh, uh, race relations, religion. I love that stuff. And I, and I studied him. And the bio I read – before I went out was Jim Brown's bio. He grew up in Manhasset. My dad talked about, he grew up right on Plandome Road in Manhasset. That's what wow. I was. So I knew about him and then Syracuse where my son went, knew how he went to Syracuse and the town came together and did told Jim Brown, they told the Syracuse coach, 
uh, this is a great running back. They say, well, we got plenty of running backs. So we're not going to give a scholarship. He's got to earn his way. So the town, without telling Jim Brown, pulled together money and paid his tuition and told him he was on a full ride. He uh-huh. played after one year. He's this unbelievable player in lacrosse and, and um, he could have done basketball too in football. They gave him a full ride, greatest running back ever. And I knew his story and I don't take it personal. And I knew right away, he used to, the first thing he said to me was, what does it mean? What, what does it mean being a Christian? You know, uh, how many black people do you know? And we had the best, <laughs> most intense conversation because I wasn't into the play-by-play of sports. I don't care who's batting sixth on the Marlins, but if that if that person batting sixth had to overcome their personal story, interests me, not the final score. So Jim and I are still friends today. I just saw him at the Super Bowl. We keep in touch. I help him out whenever I can. He helps me out whenever I and he uh-huh. gives me a perspective on race relations. Anytime something's going on, and you know everything's about race these days, yep. I go, Jim, how does this sound? Do I sound like a, a white guy from Long Island? Does this sound yeah. naive? And he comes back at me, and um, it's one of the great relationships I have. Yeah, he's a direct guy, that's for sure. He, he had a fun part in the movie The Fortune Cookie. Do you remember that? No, I don't. He had a bit in, in, in the movie The Fortune Cookie, and he, he, he was a football player, and he tripped and he crushed into Jack Lemmon, who was a camera operator. And Jack Lemmon was in a hospital suing the league, and he kept visiting him. He was great in the movie. Anyway, <laughs> it was a great role. So but, UFC, when you yeah. started in UFC, UFC was a small entity then, really, well, just but, a startup. Yeah, you're going to love this, John, in that – so I did stand-up. I wanted to push it in sports, news, and stand-up and see what came through first, right? And Or nothing, but I was going to die trying. So – I had people I knew in stand-up, and then when I would get to know them, I would take extra classes and learn about the structure. And one of the guys is a producer. His name is Campbell McLaren. And he said, Brian, I just got something. Are you going to be home soon? And I go, yeah, I'll be home on Thanksgiving. Can you come in? I said, all right. So I come in, and he puts in these Brazilian tapes. And he goes, you see the guy in the bottom? He's actually going to win. And it was jujitsu. And they would go on and on. I go, what's going on? They were fighting on the beach. They were fighting in these rings. It would go on and on and on. And they said, well, they want to do mixed martial arts and find out what the best martial arts is. We're comedians. We're entertainers. But we could put this thing on. Uh, John McCain's come out against it already. So I go, what do you want me to do? They go, what do you think? I go, you're the closest thing to a sports guy that we know. I go, I think this is the craziest thing I've ever seen, but I can't get enough of it. They go, well, would you do it? Would you get Jim Brown involved? They go, yeah. I would ask him. So Jim Brown said, uh, $10,000, I'll show up. So he shows up. We show up. It's only allowed in one state. We watch a sumo guy wrestle a, uh, a, a, a Danish uh, karate guy. We see, of course, the Gracies win everything. And we watch them fight three or four times a night. And one of the things they wanted me to say on camera, which I wouldn't, is someone could die tonight. I go, that's not the way you sell. I mean, you can't <laughs> have a business like that. So then I went down. They told me to don't put it on my resume. Whatever I do, it's going to hurt your career. I, I don't care. They're paying me more than I'm going to get paid. I love these guys. I love the fighters. They're so tough but so humble. And I did the first four. Then they got sick of me. And Jim Brown stayed with it for six. And I did other things, and it became this when Dana White had this vision, and he brought it global. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's it's now from $2 million, this investment was, it's now worth $4.65 billion. And does he still own a piece? Oh yeah, he does. We were out his. Uh, uh, we actually podcasted from his office and toured his new facilities in Las Vegas, and it's incredible. There is a room in the center of UFC that he calls the heart of UFC, and it's all white walls. And he has five hundred and thirty fighters now, and on those white walls are all the matchups. 
and they're color-coded by social media size. So they match up considering reach and marketplace as well as ability as fight. It's a fascinating. And if things don't work right in that room, the whole thing falls apart. But it's it's unbelievable what he's achieved, uh, you know, right. how his visions work. You know, he put in weight classes and he put in division. So yep. it's safe and rounds. They used to just yep. fight until you get knocked out or choked out. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly it's it's a legitimate sport. And again, he has five hundred and thirty fighters around the road involved in it, which is really incredible to me. So you became a sort of a play by play guy. Did you like doing play by play? I I'm not good at I'm not good enough at it. I think to me that's an art. I think it's uh like for example, if you took a soccer player and say you know, become a running back. Well, I might be an athlete, but I don't know the game. I actually think it's an art. And I, I did some of it uh, for soccer. I did soccer for three years and I did uh, UFC. I jumped in because uh, the guy froze. So I'm doing the ring reporting and the guy was not good. He was freezing. We we're about to go on pay-per-view and they said, would you step in? So I literally walked over there, put on the headsets and winged it. And then <laughs> was asked to do it again. I don't think I was that good the second time. And then they put me back in the ringside, and then they just, I guess, had enough of me. And then I started going in a different direction um, back, on, back on Long Island, got a job at this thing called New Sport, which was a precursor to ESPN News, nonstop news. And then yep. they, at Fox in 1996, the word went out that uh, they were looking for a sports guy at a news channel. And for some reason, they liked my tape because in our business, you could be great or bad, but if I'm not, it's a taste. Yep. And there's something about their my tape that a lot of people rejected, but Fox people liked Roger Ailes and this guy, Chet Collier. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to come in and do a, a walkthrough. Then they said, you, would you go on the air tomorrow? And I said, I don't care. No one watches Fox News anyway. No one gets it. <laughs> so I actually went on the air. It was on two channels at the same time. And no one cared. And then they said, oh, we, we're going to hire you. Do you want to start? And I go, when? They go, Monday. And that was <laughs> 1996. I started filling in. And then in 1997, I got a contract, and I've held on to it since. So I got extremely lucky. I joined the Yankees when they were the Highlanders, and they became the Yankees before my eyes. You know what's fascinating to me, Brian, when I look back at your career is you knew you wanted to to, uh, be in front of people and have an impact upon people. You knew that. But yet when I meet you, you don't have a big ego. You're really a good guy. I mean, you're just a a regular good guy. So there's no – what was your motivation to want to be in front of people? And then the next question I'm going to ask you so you know where I'm going is it's it's interesting to me how you had two or three different parallel tracks to get there going at the same time. You were very strategic in your course to get there and pursue your career. First, what was your motivation to be in front of people? Because it isn't ego in my view. Well, it's a couple of things. Like I – and thanks – I mean I cannot believe how well researched. I've never gotten questions like this, but – and I do this thing on stage now where I'm able to take my five books and put them into my, my story to inspire the people. There's no ego there in that I have over 500 rejection letters in all those three tracks. I kept almost all of them. Some got caught in a fire, but I kept all of them. And, and, and my rejections would fuel me as much as my acceptance. So and I just said because I'm not going to stop because – in sports, I wanted to be great soccer player. People around me, I was in the soccer haven. They went on to play on the national team, be Division One captains as freshmen, and I wanted. I had the same drive, but uh, very. I have a lack of ability, and I did some things wrong along the way, not not legally wrong, mm-hmm. but I should have yeah. trained differently. And after that failure, I said, in my next thing where I think I have the additional talent, I will not fail because I will I will die trying. 
because I know coach can bench you to keep you off the stage. You cannot give me a job in radio, but you can't stop me from doing radio. You cannot hire me in television, but you cannot stop me from pursuing it. But you can bench me as a coach. You can cut me off that team. So when I'm done at 22 and I've been playing since I was six, I go, I'm through. I take my cleats off. I'm done. I go, I will not fail again. But having failed and survived, I blew my perfect game and it was okay. So no one expects me to be perfect because they already, I already sat on the bench in some games where I thought I could make an impact in front of people I know. And that is humiliating even to think about it now. And that helped me liberate me on the stage that even if I failed on the stage, I'm going to go back tomorrow and I'm going to give it another shot. So uh, I wanted to I wanted to do that. It started with my family. Like I would be sitting and I'd be noticing some people not having a good time when my family would be over. And I would just try to keep conversation going. I, I'd make fun of myself or I'd keep things going. And I would try and make sure that everyone left my house having a good time. But I don't sing and I don't dance. And I felt as though I could sense humor. I don't have, I don't say I'm the funniest guy, but I have a good sense of humor. So I also love to study and I love the news and I love sports, but I love the people. So I go, if I can mix in humor and news and conversation, let's see if that's a skill set that'll get me somewhere. Because I seem to stand out in that area where you don't want me doing your taxes and you, you, know, you don't want me uh, running a triathlon. Or, you know, you don't want me as the point guard on your basketball team. So, but you know how to make people smile. Yeah. But you knew how to make people smile. Yeah. You know, boy, you and I share that so much, Brian. I had a tough mother growing up. And, you know, I had to use humor and comedy to turn her mood around. Or sometimes there were bad consequences for me. So <laughs> I use the term, I actually own it. Reaction management is a term that I own, which is how to manage the reactions of those around you. And, you know, the science of it is that if you can manage the reaction of those around you, you can better manage your own life. You learned that at a young age, just like I did in that room when you felt the need to fill those holes with something to say and comedy. And, you know, it's almost a responsibility for the environment that you take at a young age. It's interesting. And I had the same kind of scenario growing up. And, you know, that's really fascinating to me. So now you know what you want it to be. Now you're strategic. You say to yourself, okay, I'm going on a stage. I'm doing sports. You pursued several different tracks. Was that just because they were in front of you or was that really strategic thinking back then? Well, you know, I I listened to a lot of uh, Zig Ziglar, Anthony Robbins, reading uh, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, anything he wrote. Because I, I would sit here because I was also waitering at the same time, trying to make money wherever I can, selling gym memberships. But at the same time, I would structure out my day and say like an hour personal development, two hours, I'd go work out every single day. And I would do something where I'm pursuing jobs and I also like to get better. So I'm also doing voice addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay, if I have $300, I sign up for 10 classes. I'm going to Manhattan, trying to make things happen. And I thought success leaves clues. So who's doing, let's do reverse forensics. Who's doing what I want to be doing? Well, I, I thought John Tesh was the best broadcaster. I thought David Letterman was the best talk show host. Uh, Seinfeld was the best stand-up. How did they get there? So I do, how did they do it? Well, David Letterman started as a weather guy. Mm-hmm. And then what did he do? He went out to Los Angeles. Well, that sounds good. I'm going to go on stage. But if you don't like me, it's okay, because I'm going to go do radio tomorrow. Right? Mm-hmm. And if, if radio, if I can't get another job, I'm going to go back to the stage. So I never would have the sense that there was no nothing I could do. So I would do that, and then I listened to how well to how great John Tesh spoke, and I knew I didn't have the pipes that he has, but I knew I had to lose uh, the, the 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 bulk of my accent and do better on diction. So 
I try to do all those aspects while pursuing all three while trying to pay a few bills. You know, when I don't think I've ever told you the story, when uh, I came up with the idea for Bar Rescue, somebody came up to me after a speech and said, you should be on TV. So I wrote something off. It was three pages long. I go to a friend of mine who runs television for Paramount who says to me, John, you will never effing be on television. You're too old. You're not good looking enough. It'll never freaking happen. So I drive out of the Paramount gates with my dream crushed, and then I went and made my own sizzle reel, submitted it three weeks later, got four offers, got it on television. And to me, you know, I think of that moment of failure when somebody said no to me as one of my greatest moments ever. So, uh, Did you ever have a moment when, when you were driving out, did you, let, did you even have a moment or a stoplight where you said, I guess I'll try for something else then? Or were you say, I'm going to show him? No, I think it was I was going to show him. And that was really important to me. And, of course, when the show premiered, Brian, I sent him a dozen black roses when the show that premiered. Awesome. As a so vengeful, too. Uh, yes. So, so, so uh, well, I'm more of an I told you so kind of guy, if you will. And I can enjoy those moments. So what made you so thick-skinned? Was it the defeat you had in sports when you were younger? Because you yeah. obviously are very thick-skinned because none of that discourages you. Well, I mean, if you Google me, 90% of the things written about me are negative. A lot has to do with, um, you know, people can't figure out the success of Fox. That's not yep. Republican. It's not Democrat. It is people allowed to be themselves on camera and create a relationship with people. Um, there's a whole, that's a whole different thing. But 90% yep. negative. I don't enjoy seeing negative things. I mean, when I, all of a sudden I'll get a text message at one o'clock in the afternoon, Brian, we got to probably address this. Something you said this morning has everyone coming at. Okay. So I don't, I mean, I doesn't, I don't enjoy it, but uh, I always, I feel in a way it's like, who asked you? It's like, you know, it's our lives too. You know, who's this big referee that's deciding what we can and can't do, which is right and wrong. We understand the rules. We understand you can't be an egomaniac that it's important to help other people along the way. But all these people that said, which the guy that said that to you, who's he? You know, why, why was that necessary? And I, I go back, uh, I'm in college and Regis has the best show on, he was the best host ever, I think. I loved him. And I go, I go to a, um, to a Regis and Kathy Lee. It wasn't Regis and Kathy Lee yet. It was Sandy, I think, something. So one of our trips was, because I majored in communication, was to go there and talk to the producers after. So I hung off last. So I'm in, tw I'm in my last year. And this guy, started, his last name starts with an O. Yeah, I go up to him. He goes, well, I said, hey, listen, how did you get to where you're going to be? And he goes, uh, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to do what Regis is going to do. And he looked at me and he said, laughed. He tapped the guy next to him and said, say that again. I said, I would like to be what Regis is going to do. And he said, listen, I don't know you, but you have a better chance of being a pro basketball player. you got to be more flexible than that. Now, I don't, not even, I don't even play basketball well, let alone pro. <laughs> he went out of his way. To say that five years, uh, 10 years later, I meet him in Los Angeles. He's auditioning people. And I go, I met you once before. And, and I met from that moment on, I was going to prove him wrong. And I figured out exactly how I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden I meet him again. And he's, I'm fixed this guy. I can't wait to pay him back. And I go, <laughs> listen, uh, I can't wait to tell him. And I said, Hey, listen, I met you once before it was 10 years ago in New York. And I go, what did I say? Well, I asked you your advice. I said, I wanted to be a host. And I go, he said to me, really? He goes, I hope I was encouraging. I go, not really. But like, he doesn't care. But we are using that. We use that negativity to show him. The guy that fired me on the worst news, WLIG was the worst news uh, news team I've ever seen. 
Uh, the guy that hired me by the time I showed up coming back from Los Angeles to make $35,000 a year in my hometown, I show up and he goes, Brian, thanks for making the trip. Bad news. I got fired. The new guy that gets hired is a new is an anchor. Within three weeks, they decide to take, make him the anchor, make the news guy the sports guy, and I get fired. This guy walks me out to my car with security. I didn't do anything wrong. These yeah. they think I was good enough. So I moved my 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 clothes had just arrived from Los Angeles. I came home. I'm back in my house. My stuff just arrived, my bed and all these things to move into it. I don't even know if I'm going to stay anymore. I get fired. I'm sitting at home. This guy walks me out to my car. He goes, you'll find if you decide to stay in the business that this happens a lot. I can't, I go, you think I'm going to quit the business because of you? <laughs> I use that in my head every single day. And I'm at the debates, in, and the first time I've seen him, so that was 1993. So I see him at the debates in 2016. He's sitting in the backdrop. He comes out of this backdrop. He goes up to me. I'm about to go on the air. And he goes, I don't know if you remember me. I'm Drew. I'm not going to give you his last name. He goes, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so good. I looked at him like, are you kidding me? You humiliated me. You walked me out. You set me up. You knew I just went 3,000 miles to take a job. And with two weeks severance pay, you humiliated me in front of my entire hometown. He had no recollection of that. And then he asked me, listen, my, uh, my son died of an overdose. We would love you to host one of the events for him. So I used his his uh, lack of respect for me to fuel me. But in the big picture, these people that screw with us yeah. don't really understand what they're doing. And we give yeah. them much too credit, more credit than they even deserve. And I go, yeah, sure, I'll host for you. You yeah. know, get in touch with me. And he's going to get in touch with me because his grandson died of an overdose. He thinks I could headline some event for him. So I almost thank these people for doing what they did to you and doing what they did to me. Because they fuel us. But in the big picture, they don't care nearly as much as we think. When you invest, you you will invest in yourself every time. I'm the same way. And, and that's what people don't understand sometimes in life is that they invest so much time and effort into other things and other people's businesses and other people's careers. Yeah. Whereas people like you and I have always fo- chose to invest our time and our energies into ourselves, which is a selfish endeavor in the beginning. But but it's actually very unselfish. The reason why I was so excited about having Brian on the show was because I knew that his career path and the decisions that he makes and made can impact you in the way you look at your own career and the way you want to strategically design your life. I didn't realize this, but talking to Brian was so unbelievable. It just went on and on and on that I had to take the interview and turn it into a two-parter. So part two of my interview with Brian Kilmeade will lead next week's podcast. And we'll be right back with my favorite part of the show, audience call-ins. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. The NBA playoffs are here, and Podcast One Sportsnet is taking you courtside with the best podcasts in the game. Get slam-dunk coverage from the best in the biz, like Dan Patrick and Rich Eisen, as well as Danny LaRue on Real GM Radio. Then turn over for some laughs with Shaq on the big podcast. Hit the buzzer and download new episodes of these shows and more every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One Sportsnet. Shut it down! All right, John. New week and new callers. Let's do Shut it. it down! First up, we have Preston, and he wants to know what your favorite drink is. Hey, Preston. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? Good. Where are you? What city? 
Kansas City. Oh, okay, because we've been shooting bar rescue in Kansas City the past couple of weeks. I recognize that area code. Yep. How far are you from the city? Uh, about an hour. Oh, okay. Five minutes to an hour. Gotcha. What do you want to talk about today? Uh, what's the best drink you've ever had or your favorite drink? Ooh. Well, I, I have a standby that I go back to every once in a while, which is uh, the Godfather. I've been drinking that for a long time. A Godfather is, is about an ounce and a half of scotch. And the recipe calls for a half ounce of amaretto, but I make it a little dry, so I just put a couple of drops on top on the rocks. And uh, um, I'll have those as a fallback. But I've got to tell you, uh, you know, being on Bar Rescue, I get to taste all the drinks that my mixologists make over the years. And, and uh, you know, there's a few of them that are really my favorites. The Resurrection uh, um, in New Orleans is one of my favorite. We made that with coconut water, and that was a really, really light, really great, great drink. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to be unexciting here on, on you, Preston, but a great margarita goes a long way. I also think, oh, that's, yeah. I think that some of these classics are coming back, like Zombies and Mai Tais, I think, are coming back. And, you know, the oh, two are, a good Mai Tai. Uh, yeah, the two of them are very much the same. A Mai Tai doesn't have orange juice, whereas a zombie does. And that's really the only difference between them. Years ago, when I was a bartender, which was a long time ago, we used to use word associations for drinks. Preston, and uh, I think it was a zombie was rats, which stood for rum, almond, triple sec, and sweet and sour. And a, and a Mai Tai was Ratso, which added the orange juice. And that was the way we used to remember drinks back then, was with the kooky word associations like that. What do you drink? Are you a, a, a spirits or a beer guy? Uh, I drink beer. I like craft beer, and then I drink uh, whiskey. Gotcha. So you're a straight whiskey guy? Are you a bourbon guy or a corn guy? or A little bit of everything. Gotcha. Well, you know, Missouri, you're real close to whiskey country out there, buddy. So if you've never tried one, try a Godfather. It's, it's about an ounce and a half of scotch, a couple of drops of Amaretto on top. I think you'll like it, man. I will. Thank you. Take care. All right, John, moving right along. This is John from Lexington, Alabama. Hey, John. How you doing, All man? All right. Nice doing to talk to you. Doing good. This is awesome. <laughs> so one of my best chefs ever years ago when I opened up a place called Alamo Grill in Mall of America, and I used to have the sweets at the Target Center's name was John Simpson. And he was like the <laughs> greatest chef I ever had, John. I love John Simpson. I lost touch with him. So if there's another John Simpson listening who's a chef who knows me from 30 years ago, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, how you doing, John? Well, I ain't, I ain't but 28, but uh, <laughs> I do cook a lot. <laughs> do What do you want to talk about today? Uh, well, I mean, my big question, uh, that I had for you was, uh, I was just wondering, how do you pick the experts that, uh, for each of your, uh, rescue projects? Well, you know, that at first it, it all starts with, they have to know what they're doing. So they have to have experience. And, you know, on a lot of television shows, the chefs and the people on those shows don't have experience really running professional kitchens. And, you know, what bums me out a little bit today about the culinary world is a lot of people learn to be chefs so they can be on TV, not be a chef. Uh -huh. So a, a lot of people who submit applications to be on Bar Rescue, you know, might have been on other shows like on the Food Network where they, you know, compete for a plate of food or two plates of food, but they've never run a big kitchen before. 
And in Bar Rescue, we really have to do real training. It's for real. We got to open this place in four days. So I tend to bring people in who who are, are really experienced chefs and really experienced mixologists more than having a TV resume. And then what I try to do is I try to match them as best I can to each operation, which is hard, John, because I've never been to the operation before. I've never met the people before. I don't look at casting reels or anything like that. So I'm just sort of guessing based upon the market that we're in which expert works for which city. And some of it is a crapshoot, to be honest with you. That's reality TV. You know, I've never met these people before. I've never been in their bars before. When you see me walk in for recon, that's the first time I've ever been in that place before. So, so a lot of it is guesswork and hoping, hoping that I've got the right experts. But the great thing about my experts and people like uh, Vic Vegas and, and uh, Mike Ferraro and, of course, Lisa Marie Joyce and Phil Wills and Rob Floyd. And great thing about all of them is I can put them in so many different situations uh, because they all have a lot of experience. And I rely on them big time. Do you have a favorite expert from the show? Yeah, uh, yeah, Vic Vegas is probably like he's my like inspiration, honestly. <laughs> well, I hope Vic and, is listening because uh, I'll tell you a little inside story about Vic. You know, so Vic is my dear, dear friend. He lives here in Vegas. You know, Vic has cooked in my house, and you know, we're we're real buddies. I love Vic, and he's one of the most charitable-minded guys I know. But you'll like this on Bar Rescue. Vic Vegas is always the first person to cry on set. <laughs> As tough as he looks, Vic Vegas is a softie. The minute there's something to cry about, I'm guessing Vic cried in the movie The Little Mermaid, but he is such a personal, really good, emotional guy that, you know, he sits in a control room when we go through these emotional moments in Bar Rescue, and and he tears up big time. So big, tough Vic Vegas is not quite as tough as everybody thinks. He's a softie inside. Anyway, take care, John. i got to move on to another caller, but take care, buddy. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. This is awesome. (laughs) Take care, man. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right, last up, we have Will, and he has a bar rescue question for you, John. Will, how you doing, man? Hey, John, how you doing? Good. I understand you had a question about bar rescue, buddy. Yeah, I do. Um, So, basically, uh, I've been watching the show forever, and my real goal is to, you know, at the end of the show, one of the biggest, I guess, criticisms I have regarding it is... They always seem to put up a six-week update about it, about where they are. And there was a particular episode where I went to go to that Bar Rescue's website, or it's called Bar Rescue Updates. I'm sure you're yep. aware of it. Yep. And uh, that it was already, like, closed before uh, the show went on. So I'm kind of curious about the production company on who decides to put that text up at the end of the show and why does it, like – not really work out to what's really going on. Okay, let me tell you, first of all, so, so it's, a good, it's a great question, and, and I'd love to answer it for you. So, first of all, keep in mind that when I get to these bars, you know they tell you on TV, Will, that they're out of money, right? That they're going to be out of money in two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. A lot of them owe a lot of creditor money. A lot of them owe taxes. So things can happen after I leave that causes them to close that has nothing to do with the way they're running the bar. A creditor can file an action against them. The IRS can file an action against them. Sales tax can file actions against them. In some cases, the lights even get turned off. See, here's what happens in Bar Rescue. We shoot the show. I then leave. It doesn't air for about 10 to 12 weeks. The ones that are airing now are about seven, eight months old. Uh, When we're the show goes to post-production, which is, call it a month, five weeks after we shoot it, and they're finishing up the show now, 
uh, and, you know, finishing up all the editing and such, that's when they call the bar to get an update. It's typically three weeks uh, um, uh, uh, after we shoot. Sometimes it's two weeks after we shoot. And then it's put into the production, but the show doesn't air for 12 weeks later, 10 weeks later. So sometimes the bar can be closed before we open. Don't get hung up on that. Here's what you should look at. And Bar Rescue Updates is a good location for it, and there's a few other websites. We run about 70% success factor, 65% success factor. I haven't looked for a while. And when you consider, Will, that people tell you they're out of money, right? They're going to close in a few weeks. You know they got debt. They got creditors. They can't get any deliveries. They got to go to the store and buy everything COD. I'm pretty proud of that 70% number, buddy. So I'm happy to talk about the 30% that fail when we have 70% that doesn't. Make sense? It does. And, and you know, coming, you know, me being, I've done post-production editing myself, so I know, you know, putting text on a screen, I'll be honest, I don't think it's as hard that if we're, if you're putting it up, you know, let's say, you know, 10 weeks after you filmed it, or in this case now, a couple months, you know, I'm trying to figure out why would they not just change the text around? Well, we turn it, we turn it over. Yeah. We turn it over to the network uh, and you know, it's their property. So when we turn the show over in three to four weeks to the network, it's never changed. I mean, it's approved by lawyers. It's approved by all the creative people. It's booked. It's just like a book uh, that you buy in a bookstore. If things change after the fact, they typically don't go back and change the whole book. So I hear what you're saying, but TV just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. What we've been doing lately, and you'll see this in a lot of new episodes, is we've been having them do their own update by iPhone. So they tell us how they're doing themselves. I personally like that a lot more. And you can see them sitting together and they're looking in the camera. And you can get a feeling for what their attitude is and how they're doing or not. So I think you're going to see all the new episodes use the uh, iPhone approach of doing it, which, again, I think is much cooler. But there you go, buddy. I I, I hope that sheds some light on it for you. But uh, uh, no, I, I'm not ashamed of the ones that closed. You know, overall, I think we do really well. So, so uh, I'm proud of that. Yeah, I never questioned John. Your uh, I never questioned your you know ability to do it. I do feel like it is more on a post that I don't think you know. I don't ever question what your success rate is because honestly, it's amazing and I enjoy every episode. Oh, it just comes cool. down to I think the way it's in the end of the day when it's put up to the network and it's shown on television that sometimes it could be misleading to people and yeah. that's not your fault. And that, no. and I know that. Yep. On some occasions it does. That's why the video is really clear. And then there's no dispute. They said it themselves to the camera. It is what it is. So I hear you, but thanks buddy. I appreciate the call. Yeah. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for everything. My pleasure. Take care. Will. take care. Bye-bye. You know, that's actually Corey, a really good point that he mentions. And you know, when we make the show, these things are put at the end. And sometimes uh, they close before the show even airs. But you know what else a lot of people don't understand is they get no television exposure. You know, I leave. They have no money. I build a new bar. They don't have a fortune to go market it, Corey. You know, they're not sending guerrilla marketers on the street. So they're sitting there waiting for the show to air. And, Corey, sometimes they wait 10, 12 weeks and they just don't make it. And that's unfortunate. If they had a few dollars more, they probably would have made it. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like. But the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Corey will open those emails. He'll set it up with you. And then you and I will talk on a podcast and we'll have some fun. And by the way, while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast.com or the podcast. Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. 
You know, what's amazing to me about Brian is not only is he a regular guy. I mean, Brian is just a good guy. There's no ego to him whatsoever. But the other fascinating thing about Brian was how he strategically went at his career. He knew where he wanted to go. He knew how to get there. He knew he wanted to be in front of the public. He knew he had a great comfort in front of the public. So he tried comedy. He tried sports announcing. He kept doing different things that put him into the public. He had a direction. So what he did is he took parallel paths that took him to the same direction. While he was doing his sports color work, he also did his comedy. He took parallel paths to the same mission. See, Brian didn't shotgun his career. He strategically thought it through. Have you? Think about your own career. Could you have two parallel paths going to the same thing? What could you do to be more strategic, more purposeful, more deliberate in a way you attack your career? Look at Brian from doing stand-up comedy in a place like the Improv to interviewing presidents and world leaders. That's what happens when we strategically think about our futures and plan right. Well, this has been a great week. Thank you all for listening. Next week will be episode 45. I'll be doing it from Kansas City. And I thank you all for listening. And uh, part two of my interview with Brian Kilmeade will lead next week's podcast. And I'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.